Today's episode is supported by the HBO original special, Between the World and Me, now streaming on HBO Max. I love you, and I love the world, and I love it more with every new inch I discover. You are a black boy. You cannot forget how much they took from us. How they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. It's bigger than black and white. Based on the eponymous stage play and book by ta Coates, the special explores the struggle and beauty of being black in America with an all-star cast. The HBO original Between the World and Me is now streaming on HBO Max. Welcome back, y'all. Welcome back. I'm Jahan Jones. It's your girl, Taryn Finley. And it's your boy, Shaquille Rombley. First and foremost, I want to say peace to our indigenous brothers and sisters. Uh, this, of course, was what Americans call Thanksgiving, Shaquille, this week, <laughs> you know. But it, it, it's a holiday um, that we all celebrate in one way or another this year, of course, kind of uh, augmented things a bit, but hopefully everybody was able to in their socially distant way, you know, and enjoy the celebration. I know I uh, I got to cooking, you know, my my chicken in the house, the cobbler. I was throwing down. What were you making? What you what you have going on? I, I did not even know that you can cook. <laughs> I be throwing down when I feel like it. I, I hear that. I hear that. Well, um, I was one of the people traveling. You know, I was a little safe though. I made sure that I got COVID tested. It was my birthday. Mm-hmm. Wanted to go to Colorado. Gotcha. I got COVID tested. Made sure my gang got COVID tested. So being that I just came back from traveling, I kind of told myself that I'm going to stay away from my family. And this is the first year that I'm doing that. And, you Mm. know, it's making me really, really sad because, like I said, Thanksgiving is a very important holiday for me. Sometimes it falls around my birthday. But it seems like because of COVID now, we have to be a little bit more mindful of our interactions with people that we love. Right, right. And, you know, like, as much as we... So many of us in America are raised under the uh, the Thanksgiving industrial complex, I'll call it. You know, mm. like we uh, we are fed the the narrative of like pilgrims and uh, indigenous people coming together and breaking bread. And like that is, of course, the 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 symbolism we're given. But aside from that, this is like just a traditional holiday where we always usually get together. So I totally feel what you're saying with regard to like being separate from family. I've been doing the same thing. Uh, this holiday as well. So it was odd for sure, but you know, we we're doing it for a better cause. Yeah. And um, it, it's, it's crazy because people love their families because over 3 million people travel this week. You mm. know, the CDC told people to stay their asses home for Thanksgiving, yes. <laughs> but people still decided to come out. Yes. And um, this is the highest number of travelers we've seen since March. People have been traveling aggressively for the Thanksgiving holiday. And it just shows you, wow. although this holiday has this weird, complex history, People still want to be around people they love. They still want to be around their family members. Right, right. And we're going to get into uh, some of that revisionist history, so to speak, later with our guests. But for sure, this is a just a, a, a Thanksgiving that I'm particularly grateful for. You know, just to be here around to discuss it with you is, is a blessing, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's amazing, right? Because I grew up, like I said, with Thanksgiving being my favorite holiday. But it's kind of amazing to see how the holiday has evolved for, I think, our generation. Because... I'm sure you grew up making the pilgrim hats and <laughs> <Yeah>. the turkey <laughs> with <Yeah>. feathers. <laughs> yes. 
And then we got older and we seen the call for Indigenous People Day in October. Yes. And now we're seeing the call to be like, wait, should we even celebrate this holiday because of its very interesting diabolical history? Right. It's kind of like how people treat Fourth of July like it's a barbecue day. I treat Thanksgiving as um, personal reflection day. And this and this this year I've treated Thanksgiving as personal reflection day. But of course, it's just like a family gathering day. You know, I don't even really attach it to that. The, the history of the pilgrims or the, the revisionist history of the pilgrims. So how do you feel? Do you think that people should continue to celebrate the holiday? Do you think the holiday has been reclaimed? Or do you think that people should just make it whatever they want to make it? Oh, well, you know, we black people experience cultural appropriation very often. So I'm happy um, to inflict some of that on the country that inflicts it <laughs> on us so often. So happily, nah, Thanksgiving, you can call it whatever you want, but this is a, this is a day off. It's a day off. And, and uh, a day of gratitude, I'll, I'll say that. And I think regardless of the the history of the holiday, you can just take this time to, to reflect on whatever you want. You know, it doesn't have to be this American imagined history we've all been indoctrinated with. Amen, amen. Did you have time to think about some of the things that you're grateful for? Man, I'm just, I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for uh, what seems to be the retention of democracy. I don't know if you heard, but uh, Trump implicitly conceded the other day, basically gave <laughs> Biden the the permission he would need to continue with the transition. So I'm grateful that we're not going to have to get out into these streets and, you know, get our tiki torches and whatnot. No, that that sounds good. Um I must say, I've been doing this corny thing on Instagram. Well, it's not corny. I think it's kind of dope. I, like, list five to ten things that I'm grateful for every single day because... I feel like to attract more blessings, you kind of have to celebrate the blessings that you have. Right, right. So I do it on IG in hopes that other people will appreciate like the small things. And sometimes I'll do it when I had a bad day too, like stay in this spirit of gratitude Got and celebration. You. Got you. Are you comfortable sharing any of those uh, those things you're thankful for? I will say I'm thankful for my friends. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I love my friends so much. I have the best friends in the entire world. They spoil me. I always say, who needs romantic Showing love up. when you have friends like the ones I have? Got you, I'm, got you. <laughs> I'm grateful for fitness. Like I really, really love being able to run, jog, leap, kick. I'm thankful for all of those things. But I would say this year has really, really been about me being grateful for the friends that I have and being grateful for the community that I've established around myself. For so, yes. This is makeshift. This period is all makeshift, and we're all trying to make the best of it, you know? So if we're able to do so safely, I definitely salute that. Yeah, and I will encourage people listening to this show. I mean, we're all, we all have to be grateful for one thing. It might not be a family. It might not be your friends, but it might be your favorite song. It might be your favorite TV show. Shit, I watched Parkers all day yesterday, you know? Right, so. right, yeah. Time well spent. <laughs> Time well spent. Yeah, just find that one thing that you're grateful for and celebrate it. I love that. So we're going to take a quick break, friends, but when we return, we go back 400 years with mastermind New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones to discuss her Pulitzer-winning 1619 project. And that's that, y'all. Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, supported by HBO Max. In the spirit of the HBO original Between the World and Me special event, we wanted to highlight everyday influential Black voices sharing their thoughts on what it's like to survive and thrive as a Black American in today's world. Stick around for the end of this episode to hear from one of these voices, Mark Ferg, a musical artist who wrestled with societal conceptions of Black identity on his journey to self-realization. 
There's been countless times throughout my life when I was told I wasn't black enough. I never dwelled on the fact that my coworkers didn't look like me, as my relationships have never been defined by one skin color. It's sometimes difficult to grasp that I am the result of decisions made and not made over centuries. My encounters with racism were not always recognized initially. Being the primary breadwinner, black and female, new mother, I remember being excluded and at times left to fail. To grow your own food, to own your own land is powerful and a tribute to my ancestors. All right, so joining us today, we have a very, very special guest. She's not just a kick-ass journalist who was previously named a MacArthur Fellow. That's genius-level professional excellence, y'all. Give me a round of applause for that. Some snaps. Yeah, you know. She's also this year's Pulitzer Prize winner for commentary for the groundbreaking 1619 Project, which is about the enslavement of Africans at the center of America's story of the nation's founding. We are very honored to have the New York Times Magazine's investigative reporter, Nicole Hannah-Jones, joins us and steps up to the mic. Thank you. Happy to be in conversation with y'all. So last year you dropped the 1619 Project, which you spearheaded. And since then, you've had a major impact on how we study and even speak about enslavement. 1619 is in schools curriculums and that year is so much more permanent in a lot of our minds. You've also lived rent-free in Trump's mind to the extent that he formed the 1776 Commission to promote what he calls, quote unquote, patriotic education. What do you believe is the threat of 1619 to those who say 1619 is revisionist American history? You know, I've been as surprised as anyone that this work of journalism that came out now a year and a half ago would, as Beyonce would say, cause so much conversation at the highest levels of our government. And the funny thing is, when, when we hear words like revisionist history, um, it, it, it shows a fundamental ignorance about how historiography works, because all history is revision. If we knew everything that was to be known, if everything had ever been written, you wouldn't have the need for historians who are doing research and kind of revising our understanding of the past and what it meant all the time. So the real problem is, uh, and I think it's clear when he says he wants to promote a patriotic education, a patriotic education in his eyes and in the eyes of many conservatives is a white nationalist education. It is an education that furthers our founding myths, that treats America as an exceptional nation that ignores that we were founded on genocide, that we were founded on uh, chattel slavery, um, that we were founded by white landed gentry elite who wanted uh, power for themselves. And of course, what our project argues is that America would not be America without slavery, that slavery has been treated as an asterisk when it is actually central to the American story. And if one truly believes America is exceptional, then we can withstand the truth. Then we can actually be honest about uh, what we were built upon. And people don't want that. People don't think that we can handle that. I don't want to focus on the, the criticism, of course, because your project really does uh, speak for itself. But we got to at least address the fact that, you know, Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, he's described slavery as a, quote, necessary evil. And of course, just in time for Thanksgiving, he has been talking about how 
the quote radical left is not allowing Americans to celebrate the pilgrim fathers who came to America on the Mayflower. I only mention this to ask, like, how do you view yourself in the historical context as a black person who creates this kind of subversive work? So the funny thing about Tom Cotton is he's worried about an article in the food section. And what it tells you is they believe that stoking the so-called culture wars is a winning strategy. I don't think anyone uh, on the actual radical left thinks of the New York Times as a radical left institution. Uh, certainly, uh, I don't know any black folks who work at the New York Times who consider the New York Times to be a radical left institution. So when Tom Cotton says that, you know, the, the New York Times food section is issuing out like radical left propaganda and says that, you know, it must be the, the debunked New York Times 1619 project that is writing these pieces to defend a myth about the pilgrims. I think that that kind of speaks to what the entire game is. And as I tweeted it the other day, because he said, is 1619 project writing going to be writing the pumpkin pie recipes for the food section. And I was like, if you know anything about 1619 Project, it would be sweet potato pie, clearly, because Black folks don't really mess with pumpkin pie. Thank you. So to me, if this project were not in the New York Times, I don't even think we'd be having the same reaction to that. Folks are not used to uh, Black people being able to be in these institutions, the New York Times being the mainstream, or excuse me, the, the New York Times being the uh, paper of record. And to be able to create something so black, I've often said, you know, 1619 Project is the blackest thing that's ever been printed in the New York Times. And that's really what bothers them. Had this been on another platform, you wouldn't see this type of resistance to it. Black people and particularly black women and particularly a black woman who looks and acts and talks like I do are not supposed to be able to have institutions like the New York Times allow us to do our work in a way that is not watered down, in a way that is unflinching. And that has made people very uncomfortable. Um, and to me, it just speaks to the power of us being able to be in these places and um, to actually be able to use our voice in that way. I love that. That perfectly segues into, you know, my next question, which is how crucial is Black journalism today in 2020 in the fight towards empowering our communities? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. I mean, one of the reasons I helped co-found the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting is one, I know how hard it was for me, myself and the other two founders to be able to even be investigative reporters. Our newsrooms didn't support us in those endeavors. People didn't see Black folks as being able to do investigative reporting. Of course, investigative reporting is considered the most premier job at any news organization. And so we've never been satisfied to be the only one in a room. And no marginalized person, no Black person should ever be satisfied to be the only one in the room. You have to not just open that door, but pull somebody, uh, and hopefully several people through the doors with you. And my kind of personal motto has always been to try to be for other people who I needed when I was trying to make it, to think of all of the, the times I could have used someone who put in a good word or who offered me advice or who uh, handed my resume to the right person. I try to be that person now uh, for other folks who, who come from similar backgrounds as me. And the reason why that's so important, I think we're seeing that right now. Uh, Black journalists in particular have always been the conscious of this country. We've always been able to see this country for what it really is. We, we haven't had the luxury of seeing this country through rose-colored glasses. We haven't had the luxury of, of pretending that the Constitution will somehow, uh, without us enforcing it, vindicate people's rights. We haven't had the luxury of believing that 
that um, a, a large number of white people actually don't really believe in democracy. Um, and so when black journalists were sounding the alarm in 2015 and 2016 about Trump. As you all know, uh, many of us were castigated. Uh, we were we were accused of being biased. And now here we are. And everything that Black journalists said about the Trump administration, about the racial uh, uh, fears and racism that he was stoking, we are all uh, seeing, being witness to that and, and the possible uh, catastrophe. Well, certainly the catastrophe, 250,000 Americans dead from COVID. So. We have to have Black journalists who are in those roles, in the prominent roles, to really guide and drive reporting because, one, uh, newsrooms should reflect the demographics of our country, not out of political correctness, but because that makes our, our reporting more accurate. It makes it more fair. We simply will cover stories that don't get covered. Um, but also just our experiences of the country are actually uh, much more aligned with how the country actually um, functions than many other groups and particularly newsrooms that are all white. I mean, you can also see this with the coverage of the election around uh, Latinos, the way that many political reporters re uh, treated Latinos as a monolith um, and were somehow shocked that one third of Latinos voted for Trump. Well, if you understood again, your country, if you understood how race works in this country, that wouldn't have been shocking. Uh, so we have to we have to be in these spaces because our coverage and, and our insight and our skills are really necessary for a functioning democracy. Period. Period, uh, with, with a T on the end. <laughs> to that point, I love something you said about how the Supreme Court throughout history has been seen as a backstop that's essentially been used as a reliable tool to block pro-Black policies from taking hold in the United States. And I'm wondering, since you've seen Amy Coney Barrett seated on the court, do you foresee a situation wherein Americans ultimately support expanding the court if they see that it takes a far right turn? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to slightly uh, reframe that question because pro-Black policies are actually uh, pro-democratic policies. Mm -hmm. They are uh, pro-human rights and pro-civil rights policies. Black people have never uh, fought for additional rights, but every uh, rights that Black people have fought for is, has really been for equality and equality for all marginalized groups. So when you see attacks on uh, civil rights legislation, on civil rights policies, Every marginalized person should be concerned because these policies don't just affect black folks and um, the traction um, that will be lost will not just affect black folks. But I'm I'm very concerned. I mean, we have a um, very imbalanced Supreme Court right now. It is you know, we basically had a conservative Supreme Court my entire uh, lifetime, but it has gotten even more to the right. We've lost uh, some centrists who had been on the court before, and they have been replaced with people who are even further to the right. So I think we have to be really concerned. There have been some rulings in recent years, you know, um, people who want to attack civil rights, just like people who want to further civil rights, they hold certain cases until they see a court that they think will actually further their cause. So the court wasn't willing to strike down kind of key aspects of the Fair Housing Act. The court hasn't been willing to strike down certain uh, key aspects of affirmative action. But a new court very well may. A new court may want to revisit uh, rulings around gay rights. So I think we have a deep concern and actually much more 
than the Supreme Court because most cases never arise to the Supreme Court. The way that Republicans have stacked the lower courts, the federal bench, uh, I don't. I, I think when I saw it last, ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the people they've appointed to the federal bench under Trump are white men. Many of them deemed unqualified by the American bar. Many of them very young, like thirty years old. So they will serve on the court for at least two generations. They're going to be really determining uh, rights for decades to come. And and you can change. You know, you can you can um, make the Supreme Court bigger and try to subvert some of that. But I'm not even sure how you uh, respond to hundreds of uh, judicial seats at the federal level uh, being placed with, with people who are actively opposed. You know, many of them wouldn't even agree that Brown v. Board of Education, which is considered one of the, if not the most important Supreme Court ruling in the history of our country, many of them wouldn't even say that that was properly decided. Right, so right. I'm very, very worried about what this means. Um, as is so often the case for Black Americans, we're always just trying to hold on to what we have. We can't even be aspirational. We can't even try to to dream or, or vote in candidates who will further our rights. We're always just trying to hold on to what we have. And, and we are certainly going to be in that uh, position right now, even with clear, Joe Biden in the office. After George Floyd's killing this summer, you wrote a very chilling essay titled What is Old? I want to get a little bit granular with you on expanding this out a bit from a historical viewpoint. What does America owe Black women specifically? Oh my God. You know, Zora Neale Hurston said Black women are the mules of the world. And that is how we are often treated in this country. We are stigmatized in every way. If, if people think that Black, the Black race is a problem, then they think Black women are even more problematic. But actually, when you look at uh, our beliefs, the way that we vote, the way that we support community. Black women actually vote for the common good and support the common good at the highest rates of all groups. Black women are the least likely uh, to make their decisions based on individual benefit and the most likely to make um, their decisions on a group benefit. They are the most progressive of all voters in this country. And one can just look at what happened you know, in 2016 and what happened in this most recent election. Black people as a whole voted against Trump at the highest rate, but black women voted at such a high rate. Basically those who voted for Trump were in the margin of error. We don't even know of any black women outside of Diamond and Silk voted for Trump, frankly. Um, so no matter what, even though we struggle the most financially, even though we live in some of the most unsafe neighborhoods, even though we don't benefit from so much of this society. We vote for our society as a whole. And I, I wrote about this a little in my essay on democracy for the 1619 Project. And when I give speeches all the time, I show this um, slide of this, this Black woman and her daughter at the Women's March. And it said, trust Black women. And I said, if we can imagine the America that Black women would build, it would be America without a death penalty, it would be an America where everyone had a livable wage. It would be an America that takes in refugees. It would be an America that actually believes that everyone should have universal health care. These are the policies that Black women support at the highest rates of all groups. And yet we are the most maligned. So what does this country owe? Um, Joe Biden knows what he owes Black women. Joe Biden 
will ascend to the White House largely because of Black women not just going out and voting, but organizing voters all across the South, organizing voters in Michigan. Um, the question remains, though, is when will Black women actually be repaid and treated as the vindicators of this democracy? What we all fear is what we always see is leading up to an election, politicians pander and they they tell black women how important black women are. And then as soon as they get into office, black women get dropped like a bad habit. And every four years they come back to us and we rise to the occasion because we must, because if we don't get out there and we don't vote and we don't organize, we know our communities will suffer the most. So we're in this kind of catch 22 abusive relationship, right? Where we can't go to Republicans. Republicans don't even want black people to have basic rights. Uh, Democrats aren't actively trying to take black people's rights, but they're also not trying to further and improve the conditions often of black people. Um, and so black women are just going to continue to show up and be selfless as we always are. But imagine what this country would do if it actually followed the lead of black women and stopped demeaning black women as it so often does. I do feel that as a whole, uh, black people are in this together. And clearly, uh, black women don't want to move forward without black men. And, and I hope the inverse is also true. But as a community, um, you know, the essay you talked about was called What is Owed? And, and it said that it is time for us to acknowledge what was done in this country and to pay black Americans what is owed. Black folks are at the bottom of every indicator of well-being. And you can believe that that is because of one of two things. Either black people are inherently inferior. We somehow don't want good schools. We somehow don't want good neighborhoods. We somehow don't want to work. We, we must be the only people in the history of the world who don't want better for ourselves. Or that a country built on a racial caste system that said you are are so much um you are so inferior to us that we can buy and sell you on an auction block that perhaps we are still experiencing the effects of 350 years of what Tanahazi would call racialized plunder. So we understand the concept of reparations in the law. Uh, other groups have received reparations. If you go to the hospital and a doctor uh, does something he's not supposed to do and you die, even though you're the victim, your family gets um, compensated for that. We understand that. But when it comes to black folks, uh, really from during slavery and the moment after slavery ended, we have wanted to say black people are not deserving of anything. Black people are deserving of no help. And that's part of that comes with our need to deny what this country was built upon. If you acknowledge that black people in particular are owed reparations, then you have to acknowledge how foundational uh, slavery and racial apartheid was to the development of this country. And we don't want to acknowledge that so we can't pay black folks. And instead we're just um, content to let black people continue to suffer. But what I hoped people who actually engaged with the 1619 Project would understand is you never can contain that harm just to black folks. We might suffer at higher rates than other people, but the fact that we're the only Western industrialized country without universal health care, uh, which we could trace back to racism, there's a whole lot of white people who also don't have health care because of that. We're disproportionately without it. But millions of white people can't go to the doctor when they want to as well. So I think it's important to understand that racism and hurting black folks actually hurts us all. Uh, we are a poor country in general because of these policies. And if we could just liberate ourselves from that, pay what is owed, uh, try to have a more equal society, we would have a society that works better for all of us. Word, word. I just wanted to switch gears real quick. 
you are obviously a celebrated education reporter too. And at this time during the pandemic, a lot of schools face imposed closures. And we're seeing the pandemic is layering disparities. You see professional communities dealing with inequity, but also ethnic communities. And I'm wondering how you as a reporter, but also a parent, are thinking about disparity as it relates to these school closures and all of the inequity that comes with that as well. I am uh, consumed by worry and fear about what's happening right now. Uh, as you said, as an education reporter, but also as, as a parent of a child who is in a high poverty school um, and seeing how few kids are able to log on every day, uh, how how many kids still need technology, how ineffective online learning can be for our kids. Uh, the research that's already coming out is quite devastating. Black kids were already uh, the furthest behind of all groups and are now losing the most education uh, during COVID. And um, they're actually also the most likely to be in school districts that have gone fully virtual and where there is no uh, in-person option. So we haven't invested in these kids um, before COVID and we are investing even less now. And uh, all of the disparities that we saw before clearly being exacerbated and multiplied, uh, wealthy middle-class white parents, they're they have tutors for their kids. Um, they have pods. They've hired teachers to teach their kids. And Black kids, um, so many low-income Black kids are having to share devices, trying to do school on a Kindle or a cell phone or with or without internet um, with varying levels of instruction. And it is not that I don't think we have the will. We have the ability. Clearly, in this country, we've always had the ability. We, we are an extremely wealthy country. We're, we're in New York City one of the richest cities in the world. And yet tens of thousands of kids don't even have a computer to log on at home. Uh, we allow that. And um, <laughs> I don't know how we're going to handle this when, when it gets out and what we're going to do with these kids who many of them will have missed by the time this is all over, they'll fall in another full year behind um, while other kids will have continued to, to move forward. Um, it's immoral. That's all I can say. What what we're doing. Um, the kids were willing to sacrifice in a very wealthy country that could be doing something different is immoral. And um, this was one of the reasons, you know, my husband and I made the decision to put our child in a high poverty school is this sense uh, understanding that if you don't have skin in the game, if you are not connected to the people who have the least you could just stop caring because you don't have to see it and you don't have to deal with it. But it, it's impossible um, when you are directly connected to the people who are struggling so much. So I, I'm scared. I, I really am. I, I've covered education for a long time. I've written about you know school inequality and segregation most of my career. I've been in some of the most desperate educational settings, but we've never experienced anything like this in this country. And, and I don't know how our, some of our kids recover. Nicole Hannah-Jones, Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, guys. You know what time it is? It's time for the rap, y'all. You know. <laughs> you know, Shakira, what you got for us? So Grammy nominations are out, and many mm. people are not too happy with the nominations. We have 
our boy Justin Bieber saying, you know, he feels a little slighted that his album Changes got nominated for Pop Albums Awards, but he did not get nominated for R&B category, so mm. he feels a little slighted because of that. We have Tiana Taylor highlighting the fact that many women were left out of the nominations. We're talking Summer Walker. We're talking herself. We're mm -hmm. talking JoJo. We're talking her. And Beyonce is leading the trail with the most Grammy Award nominations okay. this year, right. making her now the most nominated woman in Grammy Award history. A lot of artists are coming out saying basically that the Grammys is fraudulent. Of course, Nicki Minaj came out and highlighted when she did not win Best New Artist. We have The Weeknd coming out also saying that the Grammys is fraudulent and his fans are owed. How do you feel about all of this discourse around the Grammys? I mean, we do this every year, right? There's always disappointment exactly. about who is or is not included. And we know that the Grammys doesn't have a history of including black artists in their proper categories, if at mm -hmm. all, you know? Um, so I can't ever bring myself to get completely upset with this. I laughed at the Justin Bieber gripe because he's probably he's experiencing <laughs> what black people have experienced for ages. He wants to he wants to be in the club that so many black people have been trying to expand out of as artists, you know. So it's very funny to see the tables kind of turn. I agree with you a thousand percent. So I remember in 1999 when Jay Z boycotted the Grammys mm -hmm. and. You know, not too long ago, we saw that Beyonce did not get album of the year for Lemonade. So consistently, we see that the Grammys does not celebrate black and brown folks or does not. I mean, is the Grammys really real in the sense that does it really honor who has the best album of the year? But we consistently still validate these institutions by showing up, by submitting for nominations. Right. If we want to get to a place where we kind of like highlight that the Grammys is not a fair institution why do we continue to celebrate the institution? Why do we continue to put weight and put value into it? Right, right. I'm so happy you mentioned Jay-Z because I always think to uh, there's a Pusha T line where he says, remember Will Smith won the first Grammy and they ain't even recognized Hove before Annie. Like <laughs> saying that he, until he did Hard Knock Life and he had that Annie sample in the song, the Grammys didn't even really acknowledge him as an artist, you know? So this, this is so commonplace for black people that I, I can't, I can only bring myself to get so frustrated with conditions I'm just accustomed to experiencing. And then, you know, the, the common discourse is often, why don't we celebrate the NAACP award? Why don't people show up to the BET awards the sure. way that they, they show up to the Grammys? But of course, capital has to deal with this. Because right. in American culture, a Grammy is celebrated a lot more than I guess a BET award is or an NAACP award is. But those are the institutions where we are celebrated. So we should be going where we're valued and appreciated. Right. And I mean, if we keeping it a hundred, anybody listening, I would like to ask, like, have we listened to all of the the albums on here? Because I'm going to be honest with you. Like, sometimes I'd be <laughs> repping for people just based on the strength of like what they've done in the past. I think the, I think back to uh, you remember when Beck won, I think it was album of the year over Beyonce. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, Beyonce deserves that. And I was like riding with it because we ride with Beyonce. But <laughs> I didn't even listen to the Beck album. <laughs> like, so, no, that's a, I mean, I guess you were just rooting for everybody black. <laughs> right, right. You know, so Beck got hits too. I was like, oh, I mean, you could I like Loser. Yeah, Loser's hard. <laughs> I, like that. I mean, I think the thing that it comes down to is a little bit more complicated because I know that with Beyonce sometimes, she has a, a lot of writers on her. So don't get me wrong, I'm a Beyonce mm -hmm. stan. But sure. She has probably like 20 to 25 writers on, on the albums. But 
sometimes when they look at it, they're saying that Obeck may have gotten it because he's a composer, he's a writer, and he's doing it all by himself, or mm. he's doing it with less than the amount of people that someone like Beyonce right, is doing right. it with. Yeah, it's like, because we know that this is an institution that's rife with inequity, whenever we get a hint of it, oh, we, we on your ass. <laughs> we on your ass, Grammys. Okay, so speaking of inequities in the entertainment industry and people getting their respect they deserve, did you see uh, the uh, video that went viral recently of Hassan Minaj uh, determining whether Dax Shepard is hot? Yes. <laughs> so for those who don't know, uh, a video Hassan Minaj filmed with Vanity Fair last year in December has gone viral again. Uh, it features him attached to a lie detector, and he's told that Dax Shepard rated him a 9 out of 10 on a hotness scale. And so he's asked if he thinks uh, that's accurate. And he says, no, I think Dax was going way too high. And he's asked to provide uh, a rating of Dax's hotness. And he goes with a 6.57. And of course, <laughs> of course, that had everybody laughing. But he goes into a deeper explanation of like how if you are an artist or an entertainer of color, you have to be of a you have to be hot to register to be seen as a superstar. And he names all these entertainers of color who who are Idris Alba. Exactly. But then he says you can be a schlubby white guy and still make it. So so that that definitely had me laughing throughout this week. I mean, the thing is, you know, it's comical, but it's true. It's consistently true. People of color, when we are entertainers or when you are an entertainer, you do not get the same leeway that, you know, your counterparts get. You have to be hotter. You have mm -hmm. to, you can't even have the same amount of scandals. I mean, think about the amount of chances that Lindsay Lohan has been given. Think about the amount of chances Mel Gibson has been given. And we consistently see that black and brown entertainers or entertainers of color do not get the same grace that their counterparts get. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about it last week when uh, Michael B. Jordan was named People's Sexiest Man Alive. I was like, yo, if you're trying to be subversive, you give that to little Baby or something. You know? <laughs> like, not Michael B. who be getting it all the time. We saw Blake Shelton named the Sexiest Man Alive. And I don't know what hood would name that man. <laughs> what, <laughs> where he's con what hood is that man considered sexy? Maybe in Nashville. Maybe. Maybe in the Nashville hood. But still, I feel like they got standards in Nashville that might be above Blake Shelton, but they they be rewarding sluffy white guys for the bare minimum. Exactly, exactly. And I watched, you know, recently the Fresh Prince reunion, and I don't know if you got to see it, but it was amazing. And mm. it, it really rings bells to the conversation that we're talking about. Mm. First thing first, we got to say rest in peace to Uncle Phil. You know, you know. But it was iconic. If any of you know about the legacy of the show, you know that there has been a feud over 20 years between Will Smith and Blackress Janet Huber. But it seems like that feud may have come to an end after this very, very amazing conversation. Take a listen to this clip. I can see now the level of pain and the level of struggle that it was for you just to show up every day and then but you took all that away from me mm -hmm. with your words. Mm -hmm. You know, words can kill. Mm -hmm. I lost everything, reputation, everything, everything. And I understand you were able to move forward, but you know those words, calling a black woman difficult mm -hmm. in Hollywood is the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. It's the kiss of death. And it's hard enough being a dark-skinned black woman mm -hmm. in this business. This was really, really hard for me to listen to because a lot of times we think that things are just words, but 
this woman lost work and she was kind of blackballed from the industry because of comments that was made about her that she believes were not completely true. What do you make of all of it? I mean, I think watching that, you can very easily tell that this is something that's been on her mind for, what, 20, 25 yes. years, mm-hmm. that she's been waiting to tell Will to his face. Some people in that situation might kind of cower or draw back their criticism, but she was very clear in saying, no, this mm-hmm. impacted my career. It impacted my life. And when you mm-hmm. think about, I mean, I can't really name anything else she's been in aside from that. So we all can kind of detect the ways she was ostracized after this show as well. Exactly. I'm a big Will Smith fan, but what I really would like to see is redemption, right? Mm-hmm. What I love about Tyler Perry is he will hear about a struggling actor and be like, I got a show coming right, out. Right, you know, right. I got a movie coming out. So Jenny Huber went to Juilliard. And let's be real. The light skin on them has nothing on the black tress. You know what I mean? Jenny Hubert just brought it. I would never forget that scene when she was breaking it down and dancing oh, and yeah. killed it. Oh, yeah. And then fell out <laughs> right after. Iconic, exactly. Iconic. So what I would really love to see for her is Will Smith is probably one of the most powerful actors in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I would like to see him kind of like help this woman out. You know, he's also a producer. Give her the support that she needs because she has not been working consistently for over 20 years. And it's unfortunate. Right. And hopefully the special is a step toward that. I think it was so... Exactly. It was just so heartwarming to see, the, you know, the cast members unite. And the Fresh Prince is a fixture in so many black people's lives, at least black people of our age, that to see that unity at a time like this where a lot of people are, are downtrodden and feeling, like, detached. So... It was really heartwarming to see that Janet Hubert, of course, was talking about the way she was ostracized from Hollywood and had her work taken from her. And that kind of reminds me of uh, the Chappelle news that dropped this week. Did you hear about that, Shaquille? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. So Dave Chappelle succeeded for those at home. He succeeded in getting his old sketch show, Chappelle Show, removed from Netflix. And this is after his public campaign in which he explained that he's not being paid for the show's streams any longer. He explained that he did sign a a contract with Comedy Central. And so in a legal sense, they're not obligated to pay him for the show, but he felt that it's an exploitative relationship for them to continue making money off of his name without him being able to partake in that. And at the end, he basically warns Comedy Central that he's going to go on a public rampage against them unless they agree to come to some sort of equitable agreement regarding, you know, compensation for the show. And it just really speaks to the idea of black creators being compensated for the value they bring to these multi-billion dollar companies, multi-million dollar companies in some situations. Yeah, I mean, he highlighted in his in the video that he posted on Instagram that the reason why Prince went as the artist known as Prince mm-hmm. is because when you're signing a contract, that's what they call you, the artist. The artist does not have the rights to their name. The right. artist cannot do X, Y, and Z. So it's unfortunate because a lot of times when you have a black entertainer, they do not have the resources to have the best lawyers and they often do not come from wealth. So if you offer them if you offer them a salary and they're already coming from poverty or if they're already coming from a situation in which they don't have money, of course they're going to hop on that contract. But what I will say is mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle is that man because not too many people can go up there and challenge these major exactly. corporations in the way that he's doing it and kind of win. He's winning right now because he's getting what he wants low-key. 
Yes, and to those who haven't seen it, uh, he posted a video to his Instagram. It's kind of a miniature comedy special called Unforgiven, about mm -hmm. 18 minutes long, and he explained it, it. I think it's worth the full watch. It comes with a caveat, yes. of course, with any comedian that, you know, I don't agree with everything this person says. But when you hear him just explain the ways in which he felt he was exploited in his signature style as a storyteller, it's so beautifully done, and I think it will resonate with a ton of people. And you've already seen all sorts of people online coming to his defense. I'll tell you, I was literally watching Chappelle's show on Netflix when the news dropped. So I pulled it wow. up. <laughs> I pulled up Netflix to see it and uh, it took me back to the home screen. It was like, no, we ain't got it anymore. So yes, yeah, so I thought it was a great exhibition of black creative power and the sort of momentum you can get behind it if you have a, a righteous cause. And we've already seen so many, you know, celebrities and people around the, the globe who've been supportive of Chappelle. Yeah, and one of the points that Chappelle made was he learned very early on in his career what happens when you get in between a man and their male. And basically, he's kind of highlighting the fact that these corporations, they see these entertainers as males, right? They're like, they just see them as profitable because of their talents, right? So at the end of the day, they don't, they don't really care about the male. They just care about the profit, and the profit is Dave Chappelle. So shout out to Dave Chappelle for getting what he wants and consistently using his voice to advocate for artists, black artists. And you know, Shaquille, one of the lines from the Chappelle special that really resonated with me is when he talks about how he called Netflix up and said that their streaming of his show without him receiving any proceeds made him feel bad. And he says, you know what they did? They agreed they would take it off their platform just so I could feel better. And he says, that's why I fuck with Netflix. And it is very ironic, you have to say, to see Chappelle, this comedian who has been criticized on several occasions for making marginalized groups feel bad. He, in this moment, saw his feelings validated. And I think that just shows that lessons abound in this situation. You know, know your worth, True. know others. And that's the way we get out of this. All this. True. And that's that. This episode was supported by the HBO original special, Between the World and Me, now streaming on HBO Max. For more, you can listen to their companion podcast wherever you get your podcast. And before you go, hear the rest of Mark Berg's inspirational story of becoming a Black musical artist in America. There's been countless times throughout my life when I was told I wasn't Black enough. As if there's a rule book to follow or boxes to check that make you undeniably black in America. This left me feeling outcast for a large part of my life. On the other hand, I've always felt discomfort in white spaces as well. I would feel like I was their representative for all black people, or I would be made to feel like I was just one of the good ones. It seemed to me like I was a little too hood for the artsy kids, and just a little too artsy for the hood. I developed a love for music at a very young age. Music was everywhere. My father played the bass guitar and was an avid collector of different types of music. My mother, she introduced me to gospel by forcing me to join the youth choir at my church. My sister and older cousins introduced me to hip hop. I always seemed to gravitate towards the more eccentric artists, those that were doing something fresh, new, and different. Artists that were bold in their statements, eclectic in fashion sense, and sometimes seemed like they were from another planet. These artists owned their identity, and their differences didn't make them any less black. It just added to the spectrum of what black culture actually is. It's ever-evolving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music helped me accept my own truth. 
and find my own identity. While witnessing a global pandemic and worldwide social unrest, I decided that the most authentic way for me to contribute to the current state of the world is to reflect and document it through my art. So I created an album. It's called Planet Earth is a Ghetto, But I Still Love You. In making this album, I found that if you share your truth, you'll find that you're not as alone in this world as you may think. For more stories like this one, visit HuffPost.com. And that's that for this week. Thanks again to our special guest, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for sharing her genius with us. Our show is produced and edited by Izzy. I'm not the one. I'm the two per best. Nick Offenberg, Sarah Patterson, and my girl, Becca D. Gregorio. I'm Jahan Jones. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Jahan. I'm Taryn Finley. Y'all know where I'm at, underscore tearing it up. And I'm Shakira Rombley. You can follow me anywhere at Rombley. We'll be back next week. Until then, you've got 28 days till Kwanzaa, (laughs) y'all. And keep it juicy. Juicy. And that's that.